you. Let's, let's pray again briefly. Oh Lord, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be active and working in our hearts and in our church as we open up your word. May he teach. May he admonish, encourage, convict, build up. Help me to teach rightly and well and give the hearers discernment and ears to hear what the Spirit has said to the churches. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, context is very important when you're trying to get the, at the real meaning of a biblical text. And ignoring the context can lead to missing the, uh, the true meaning of a text entirely, or even missing, a, missing the meaning of a phrase or a part of a verse. Back in my uh, hopelessly chauvinistic days of my adult adolescence in Bible college, some of us uh, young men would make snarky jokes about some of the uh, women students. We, would, we said that they weren't there so much for uh, their education, but for their MRS degree. You know, you've heard of that, the MRS degree. And then, you know, the point, and what we're saying is that the point wasn't the diploma and the graduation ceremony, but the marriage license and the marriage altar. And we accuse such women of, of taking Luke 9.23, if not for their life verse, just for the the, the, the verse for this season of life, for this time of life, and you have to use, you had to use the King James Version to get at the meaning we were after, but we said this, this was their, this was their verse, if any man would come after me, let him. That's just a part of a verse. You know, but, but the meaning that we were assigning to the text, if you just expand the context just to the whole verse you know you didn't mean need much context to expose you know the meaning we were assigning to it is just as nonsense it says and he the whole verse is this and he you don't learn who the he is in the, in the in that verse but if you expand the context a little bit more just a little bit more you see that the he is jesus and he said to them all if any man would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It, has, it didn't have the meaning we were assigning to it, right? And it's obvious. But ignoring the context allows us to distort the intended and true meaning. But, you know, just like you all did, nobody, nobody took it seriously, especially in my case, especially in my case. You know, that's Dallas Bible College where Robin and I met. But the story around campus that I heard was that Robin was getting Christian service credit for dating me. So it went the other way. That's what my, everybody had to have a Christian service. They had to be teaching a Sunday school class, doing something. And, that, and they were, my friends, were telling me she was getting Christian service credit for dating me. We also had a verse that justified cheating on texts. You have to use the King James there, too. You have to, King James, the only one that works. It's Philippians 2, 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Context. The context shows that it has no connection whatsoever to cheating on exams and looking over at the smarter person on your right or left when you're, you know, copy their, their answers down has nothing to do with it. That's not what it's about. Those are, you know, Christian jokes. 
but sometimes ignoring the context is a little more serious. Over the, a lot more serious. Over the years, I really can't tell you how many times I have spoken with people whose idea of the Christian life is that you can be saved and then you can become unsaved through the badness of your bad behavior and then you can get saved again and then you can lose your salvation because you've you've done something that that is unworthy and you become you know unsaved for a while then you become saved again and just on and on and on and on and on I might quote in, you know, in opposition to that idea, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is not the only one, but there's a lot of good ones that really give the lie to that whole idea. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't matter which version you use, really. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And they would counter, a lot of times they would counter, Yes, you are saved by grace, but we can fall from grace, and the Bible says that too. Well, that is a biblical phrase, fallen from grace. It's in Galatians 5, and here's the whole verse. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And just the context of the whole verse, not just the phrase, fallen from grace or fall from grace, not just the phrase, but just expand the context to the verse or expand it to the whole paragraph or expand it to the whole, really, the whole of Galatians or really even that beyond the whole New Testament. And don't just stay with that little verse, fallen from grace and a sign and a meaning. It's easily seen. You just expand the context a little bit and it's easy to see that the biblical teaching is that anyone who is depending on their own human effort, on their own performance as a Christian, either to become saved or to stay saved, has, in Paul's terminology, is not depending on grace anymore. He's fallen from grace. He's decided he doesn't need grace anymore. Here or hereafter. For Paul and for the you know the whole New Testament, it's either uh, salvation is either of works or it's of grace. It's either by effort or it's by faith. So for Paul, falling from grace or having fallen from grace does not mean falling out of salvation due to poor performance as a Christian. It means. It really means the opposite. It means depending on our performance as a Christian for the maintenance of our salvation, to keep ourselves saved. Nevertheless, those who imagine a person can be saved and lost and saved and lost and going on and on continue to use the phrase, fallen from grace, because it might, out of context, it's, it could suggest the meaning they're giving it. I, I, I'm reminded of Dr. Geisler, who constantly, uh, Norman Geisler, you may, have, you may know the name, have seen him, heard him, read his books, constantly 
drummed into us. I don't think it's original with him, but he said it all the time. A text, with a biblical text, without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> don't do it. In some ways, we're in 1 Corinthians. In some ways, context is less important in 1 Corinthians as a whole, the whole letter, uh, than it is in most other epistles. Because 1 Corinthians in some ways reads like a grocery list. And in a grocery list, it doesn't matter what's first and second and third. It's just all in there. It's individual items. Uh, 1 Corinthians is written in response to a letter to Paul and to ask him to address certain questions. And you see Paul addressing those questions one by one. And we also think we, pro we probably see some things in there that, that Paul wanted to put in himself that weren't in their, the Corinthians letter to him. And you see evidence of this throughout the letter where Paul goes from one issue to another. He's just saying, oh, just going down a list. 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. 7.25, Now concerning the betrothed. 8.1, Now concerning food offered to idols. 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts. 16.1, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now concerning means... New topic starting here. It's a it, it, it's it's a beginning of a, at the beginning of a section. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of a therefore at the beginning of a section. You know that therefore at the beginning of a sentence says you'd better pay attention to what I said previously. You better pay attention to what I said previously because. Uh, what I'm saying now, what I'm about to say, is based on that. It's an inference from that. Uh, there's another memorable proverb about Bible study, you know, like the, like the text and pretext and all that. There's another one that says, whenever you see a therefore, make sure you understand what's there for. You know, that's, it's based, you have to take into account what's gone before because it's based on it. New concerning is like the anti-therefore. Now concerning means new topic starting here. It's not necessarily based on the previous paragraph or something. But the, first, but the uh, context of 1 Corinthians 13, which is what I want to talk about today, it really is important to our understanding of the, what that chapter is about. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the best-known it may be the best-known thing in the whole Bible, really. It's the love chapter. It's, it, it, it's, the context is usually studiously ignored because you don't need the context to get it to say what you want it to say. It's the love chapter. It's, you hear it at weddings. You know, it's, it's printed on... Weddings inscribed in rings, but it's a needlepoint wall hangings. You see it on calendars. You see it on greeting cards. You know, bracelets and you know, t-shirts, coffee cups. It's everywhere. Part of First Corinthians 13, maybe sometimes the whole chapter. Who knew? People were so interested in spiritual gifts because. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. 
It's about spiritual gifts, these spiritual enablements of the Holy Spirit that God gives to each Christian, these stewardships of grace, 1 Peter 4.10 calls them, through which God pours his grace onto others. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Well, someone might say, well, how can, how can you say that? It's the love chapter. It's not the spiritual gifts chapter. It's the love chapter. Everybody says so. Everybody knows it. Here's how I can say it. It's all about the context. One of those new topic markers, now concerning, 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts. I do not want you to be uninformed. Chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is all about spiritual gifts, especially the spiritual gifts of tongues or languages or and prophecy, that and, and especially the first one the one that the corinthians exalted above all others so the broad you know 12 is 12 says now concerning spiritual gifts 12 is about spiritual gifts chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts so there's at least the idea that the suspicion we ought to have that chapter 13 has something to do with spiritual gifts chapter 13 does not begin now concerning love new topic it doesn't start that way the suspicion that 1 Corinthians 13 is about spiritual gifts is confirmed immediately in the chapter itself. Well, it begins about talk, discussion of spiritual gifts, and it ends with a discussion of spiritual gifts in the chapter itself. But let's just start at the beginning. 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. You see any reference to spiritual gifts in that verse? Do you see anything that might, looks like a spiritual gift in that verse? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Sure you do. It's those gifts of various kinds of tongues or languages mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, the, at the end of the chapter, 28. And by the way, by the way, because I want to say something about... The, what we can learn about these gifts in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. The word translated tongues there, and if you have tongues in your, in your Bible that you use, it basically means languages. You know, you speak in a foreign tongue or something like that. It basically, it really does mean languages. Same, same word. In Acts chapter 2, the manifestation of the Spirit... Uh, seems to have been the ability to speak in languages that the speaker did not know. Acts, in other words, a known language. You know, French, not French, German, <laughs> English, but languages like that: Parthian, Mede, Persian. Acts 2:4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. You can leave that up, David. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that those languages spoken by these uneducated Galileans that day were known languages seems confirmed in that the unbelieving internationals gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover or First Fruits, pre-Christians, we hope a lot of them, right? Not believers yet. They heard, they understood the speakers to be speaking of the, or one of the speakers at least, to be speaking the mighty acts of God in their own language, they say so. The gift of tongues 
or languages in 1 Corinthians appears to be something else other than speaking in a known human language that, that, you, that the speaker has never studied or never learned. Except it's unknown. It's unknown except to those who are gifted with this uh, corresponding gift of interpretation of tongues or languages. Here's 1 Corinthians 14, 2. For one who speaks in a tongue or language speaks not to men, but to God. If you're speaking French, you're speaking to a Frenchman, right? If you're speaking German, miraculously, you've never studied German, you're speaking German, some a German person here, you're speaking to men, aren't you? But 1 Corinthians 14, 2 seems to be talking some other kind of, you know, various kind of tongue, various kind of language. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, everybody there understood somebody speaking in a tongue. But in 1 Corinthians 14, no one understands unless there was someone present with this corresponding spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues or languages. Various kinds of tongues, Paul has said. This verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, has led some to identify the unknown uh, kind of gift, kind of language, you know, this unknown, the one that doesn't speak to men but to God. As the light, because of the language of this verse, they say, well, it's, it's angelic language. It's the language of angels. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Well, you know, Job 38, 7 says that when God created the universe from nothing, the angels sang and shouted for joy. Well, when they, when they did that, when the angels sang and shouted for joy at the creation, uh, man had no, no man had ever uttered a single word yet. And, and yet there's also, so is it, is it and, you know, is this other gift, this other kind of tongue, is it really angelic language, the, the language of angels? And yet there's a question of whether Paul is speaking in, in kind of a hyperbolic uh, uh, hypotheticals in these verses. Because as we go on, you know, he does do all the things that he mentions. He didn't understand, as coming up, he didn't understand all mysteries. If I understand all mysteries, have all knowledge. He didn't move mountains by faith, at least not literally. He didn't deliver up his body to be burned, although he would become a martyr. So it isn't, it isn't at all clear that he claimed to have spoken in the language of angels, even though he claims to have shared and even excelled in this gift of languages. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all, he's, he's going to say later. But those side, Paul is saying something about these gifts of various tongues or various languages, and this is it. This is what it's really saying. No matter how spectacular or strong anyone's gift of languages or gift of tongues is, if it is exercised without love, it is only so much noise. 
like a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. I, I think if Paul would have written in the 21st century instead of the 1st century, he would have said something like, this loveless exercise of this gift is like a car alarm going off and the owner's nowhere around to shut it off. <laughs> it's, like the do- it's like the neighbor's dog barking incessantly through the night. It, not only is it not edifying, not pleasant, not building up, it's downright annoying. <laughs> but it isn't the gift. Now notice this. It's not the gift itself that he's talking about. He's talking about the exercised without being attended by, undergirded by, motivated by love, and that's when it becomes not only not useful, but annoying, distracting. It's a net minus. Can you imagine exercising a spiritual gift which we learned last week are 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 stewardships of God's grace they're intended by God to serve the common good it's a special ability that people have that God actually pours his grace through it uh, onto other people can you imagine being able to exercise a legitimate gift in that way but in that the best thing you could do to really serve the common good is just stop exercising your gift. (laughs) Just stop it. Just quit. Can you imagine? And yet that's what he's saying. If I exercise this gift, no matter how spectacular it is, even if it goes to the angelic language, if I speak the languages of angels and don't have love... It's just, it's a, it's less than a zero. It's, it's a negative. It's just a distracting annoyance. But it isn't just the, an ill use of the gift of tongues that he's talking about. Look at the next verse, 13.2. And if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, I'm saying that this chapter is about spiritual gifts. You see any spiritual gifts in that verse? You see any? I see, you know, at least three. There's prophecy. You know, he's talked about prophecy in 12. He's going to talk about prophecy in verse in chapter 14. Uh, private word of knowledge or utterance of knowledge, uh, the the the, uh, the gift that previously was just just mentioned as faith. It's all a spiritual gift of faith. So there they are. Now, what? Just a word about what we might learn about the gifts mentioned before we get to the main import of what Paul's saying. Paul certainly had. A great prophetic gifts. I mean, Paul did. I mean, rem- remember that the e- what's the essence of prophecy? The essence of, pro- of prophecy in the prophet's role is to receive a message from God, right? Receive a message from God and relay it to the people for whom it's intended. That's what a prophet does. Priests represented man to God. God prophets represent God to men. It's a, 
So what, did Paul have prophetic gifts? Well, he's an apostle. But boy, in his apostleship, there is a strong strain of prophecy. About two-thirds of the New Testament written by him certainly testifies to this prophetic nature of his apostolic gift. And how the church was and continues to be edified by his God-given stewardship of grace, how he was used by the Lord to convey his message to us. So Paul had great prophetic, you know, he's an apostle, but in his apostleship, boy, there's a strong element of prophecy in it, isn't it? I mean, both in the written word that we have, the words from God that we have through him, and also just through his ministry that we see. But Paul did not have all knowledge. He did not understand all mysteries, like this says. If, I, if my prophetic gifts are so strong that I understand all mysteries, have all knowledge. That wasn't, that wasn't Paul's experience. In fact, he's going to say so toward the end of this chapter. We're not going to really look at it today. But if you're looking at your Bible, 13.9, he says at the end of this chapter, For we know, we know in part, and we prophesy in part right verse 12 for now we see in a mirror dimly Paul did not claim to have all knowledge understand all mysteries so nobody nobody in the church then or nobody in the church now has had or has prophetic gifts to the extent that Paul describes in this verse and we also see a clue to what Paul meant earlier when he talked about a spiritual gift of faith. He said in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 9, he said, to another, faith by the same spirit. There's a spiritual gift of faith by the same spirit. He can't be talking about saving faith, faith in the gospel, trust in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Every Christian has that kind of faith, and if you don't have that kind of faith, you're no Christian at all. So he's not talking about that kind of faith. He's talking about a kind of faith or a strength of faith or a depth of faith that some Christians have. And it's a, it's a gift. And this verse might be a clue to what he meant earlier when he just said some have a gift of faith. Because this one says, if I have faith, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains... And on the basis of this verse, some people say, well, that gift of faith is a faith to work miracles. Others would see a more metaphorical meaning so that the gift of faith would be a faith that enables the realization of just really the seemingly impossible, removing mountains of obstacles, you know, the, the, an against-all-odds kind of a faith. A, uh, a Gideon-like faith who could go into battle confidently with his 300, God's, three, those, his God's chosen 300 against the Midianite hordes, thousands. When, we, when our church bought this building, we needed $60,000 in a matter of weeks. It was coming up in weeks, like two weeks or three weeks to be able to go, or a little longer than that maybe, but not just weeks, to be able to go to closing. 
And that was when we had $32,000 in the building fund. One, one of our elders at the time said, what, what are we going to do? You know, we're just proceeding into this thing like we've got the money, but we don't have the money. What are we going to do if we don't, if the money isn't there? I mean, look at the families. Everybody has already made the big stroke. Everybody's already written the big check. You know, there's not, there's not another stroke coming. You know, the people that gave five, you know, some people might have given 5,000 or 2,000 or 1,000 or 500, but whatever it was, it was, the, it was the big stroke for them. There's probably not another one. And I, I cannot stand here and tell you that, that I have, you know, a gift of faith uh, in an abiding sense, like constantly all the time. But I can tell you that in that circumstance, and in that time, I absolutely knew that the money would be there. I just knew it. Let me say I had faith it would be there, but it was so strong that I, I knew it. And you know what? I did not expect, I didn't ask, and I didn't expect the people who had made the big stroke and given the big check. I didn't expect, I didn't ask them to make another one. I didn't at all think that's where, I didn't know. I didn't know where it would come from. I just knew it would be there. I just knew it. We just say, you know, I knew that the Lord would provide it somehow. And I couldn't even make myself worry about it. I, I prayed for it out of a sense of that it should be done. But there wasn't any desperation in that prayer. I just knew it would be there. Hebrews 11 says, uh, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know what? In that moment, that's what I had. <laughs> that's what I had. And without worry, without a second thought, proceeded in negotiations, and we purchased the, you know, we pursued the purchase of this property, the one, we're, the one you're in right now that we've had for 20 years or so, and by the way, we went to closing with about $64,000 in hand. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. We have to remember that according to Jesus, it doesn't take all faith to move mountains, does it? He says, if I have all faith so as to, so as to remove mountains... It doesn't take all faith to move mount. According to Jesus, you know, actual or metaphorical, however you want to understand it, Jesus says it takes faith the size of mustard seed. Right? It takes this much faith. And he's saying to the disciples, you don't even have this much. Ye of little faith. Now here comes Paul in this verse. He's talking about all faith, all possible faith faith at ultimate and maximum strength now what's the main what's he really saying here what's the main import of this verse he says even if someone where has the ultimate prophetic gifts such as we've never seen other than jesus 
understand all mysteries, understand, have all knowledge. Even, you know, we might think of it, if, if someone were to have just be an awesome Bible expert, the most insightful theologian ever, the best Christian thinker anyone ever knew, or if someone has a genuine prophetic gift and it's a really, really, really strong one, or if someone, even if someone has a strong gift of faith, a faith to accomplish great things, the seemingly impossible things, or per, maybe even work miracles, if those wonderful and strong gifts are exercised apart from and without love, amazingly, what he's, what's he saying here? The net effect of that giftedness is a zero. You know, everybody's a package deal. You take the good with the bad. And Paul makes this surprising calculation that without love, and as we go in the, further on the chapter, without love for people, even the ultimate prophet, someone with ultimate faith, and here I'll steal a sentence about, I read from an article about politics this week, but it seemed to go with this. That person with ultimate prophetic gift, ultimate faith, are like, and here's the quote, they're like two guys named Jack and Squat sitting in the Zilch Cafe eating a nothing burger with a side order of shutout that was overcooked by a fellow named Bupkis and served by a waitress named Zilch. <laughs> Is nothing. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean, someone had that kind of prophetic gift. Wouldn't they? Sh wouldn't people show up in droves? If someone has this kind of faith, so as to move all faith, so as to move mountains. You know, or metaphorical or actual. When you think, "Wow, that's awesome," and, and Paul says, "Without love, zero zero one more one more verse one more example 13 3 if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing now Paul hasn't mentioned a spiritual gift of giving in this letter but he does in, in the other in one of the other lists it's in Romans 12 12.8 specifically. So he may be here, maybe even probably has in mind another kind of spiritual gift of giving. And once again, he takes it to the extreme. If I give away everything I have, if I give my very body, my very life, but do not have love, if it isn't love motivating the sacrifice... Once again, he says, it amounts to nothing. Is it conceivable that someone would give away all their earthly possessions or even sacrifice their life and not be motivated by love? Well, sure it is. It's conceivable. Could be motivated by a strong sense of duty. Not love, but duty. It could be motivated by pride, a desire to be seen and recognized as the best 
It could, a longing for fame or, or the, the, you know, the applause of men. In Acts, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, I'm not going to go back and look. I'm assume you remember the story. But in, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't give all they had. They didn't even give all of the purchase price of the property. But whatever they gave, they gave out of a spirit of envy for the recognition that Barnabas was getting in the church. Look how, they're, look how they look up to Barnabas. Look how they admire Barnabas. We want some of that. They didn't give out of love, other than a love for recognition, love for applause. Love had nothing to do with it. And, it, and it's this verse, by the way, before we get to the main import of it, it's this verse that shows us that love is something more than willed altruism, that a decision of the will to do loving things. Now, we haven't talked at all yet, and we won't today much, about what love is. I'm assuming you're as smart as, at least as Forrest Gump. You know what love is, at least for today. But it is common for evangelicals to, de to deny, for people like us, Christians like us, it's common for people like us to deny that love has an affectional or an emotional element. They say it has nothing to do with your feelings, nothing to do with your, how your, your affections, how you feel about somebody or something. It's a decision of the will. Just this week I heard a recorded sermon by a very popular preacher who takes this tack. I won't mention his name because I'm going to disagree with him, but he's got the same initials as Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg, by the way. He, he ministers. He, I don't know if it's just It's not just his voice. He's easy on the ears. He's easy to listen to. But I, really, content-wise, I, I, he really does minister to me. But this is a case where I test everything and hold on to what is good, and the implication is let the rest go, and this is something I let go. <laughs> Because he said that, that we're commanded to have love, but that has nothing to do with our emotions, how we feel, whether we like people or not. And he said this, something to the effect of this, if that were the case, if there were an emotional element in it, an affectional element, how could Jesus tell us, command us to love our enemies? And he says that as if it's impossible that God could command us to be emotionally and affectionately invested in the blessing of our enemies. And the idea is that you can control your actions, you can control what you do, but you can't affect, you can't control your feelings, you can't control your emotions. And God only commands us to do things, and He only commands us in areas we can control. But I find that God commands our emotions, our affections, which are certainly beyond our immediate control all the time. We're to love people. We're to hate our sin. We're to rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice, right? Does that mean always pretend to be rejoicing? <laughs> always paste a happy face on your grieving or your complaining heart <laughs> does it it means to rejoice we're not here's one of the big ten we're not to covet and what is coveting 
without emotions. You can covet without ever acting on the inner attitude of coveting. You can covet your, covet your neighbor's wife without ever expressing an interest or making a play for her. And yes, we can't flip a switch and turn on love. We can't rejoice from the heart when our heart won't let us. So what is it? We command, but he commands us. So what we need, we often need, is a fresh outpouring of God's grace to please God on the level of my affections. You know, we all struggle with this problem, right? We love things we oughtn't love. We hate people we oughtn't hate. Our affections are fallen too. It's not just our wills and what we do that God is after. It's who we are, how we feel. It's our hearts. And, and this verse right here, it shows that love, whatever it is, we haven't talked about it yet, cannot be reduced to an emotionless, calculated decision to do the loving thing. And here's why this verse proves it. This verse says you can make a decision to give away everything you have and not have love. This verse says you can make a decision to give your very life and not have love. Which, in both cases, it makes it out to be a big, fat zero. You gave away all you had for nothing. You gave your life for nothing. Love cannot be reduced to a mere sentimentality that can't be bothered to do anything for others, which is part of what teachers like Beg are getting at. Don't just don't say love is just a feeling we have and you can't be bothered to help anybody. I love everybody, but not so as you could tell. That's not love. But neither can it be reduced to a calculated, emotionless decision to sacrifice for the good of others. Let me let me read you a verse and, and leave that one up there. But let me read you a verse, First Peter one twenty two, that that shows one of many 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 that that show this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. What's he making it? A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. Love is not a decision to do what you would do if you did love. <laughs> That's another nothing burger. Served by a waitress named Zilch. <laughs> so what's the usefulness of this? Well, by the way, just to, just to bring it home, what's this verse say? If your gift of giving, and I think he is talking about gifts, if your gift of giving... Is, so, is such that you give away everything you have. If, if you give your very life 
and do it without, if it's not motivated, if it's not undergirded, if it's not informed, if it is an expression of love, it's, it's zero. It's nothing. You'd have been just better off just, as far as what it does, you've been better off not doing it at all. It's the same thing. What's the usefulness of this doctrine? What does it mean for each of us? What's it mean for all of us together? Well, I'm sure in specific situations, in specific relationships, in this church, or any church, I'm not just picking on you, but you're here, and I am too. I'm sure in this church, in specific situations, there's a need for a more genuine, more heartfelt, more sincere love. I mean, we're all sinners in recovery after all. And it shouldn't surprise any of us that some sinners rub our fur the wrong way. Can you, can you flip a switch and make a decision of your will uh, to begin to love like you should from the heart? Boy, would it that were that simple, right? Would it were that simple but so that we could rely on ourselves and not on God who raises the dead? Chances are, you know, those people that rub you the wrong way, chances are you're already doing the loving things <laughs> towards that fellow believer who's not quite your cup of tea. It's just that your heart lags behind your well wishes and your polite greetings, right? It's just your heart's not quite in it like it is with the ones you really love. So there's that. But mostly, what's the import of these verses for us? Mostly I want to commend and ask for more of what is an already an, an excellent and broadly experienced thing in this church. This past Thursday, our, our elders met with Glenn Schreiber. He's the district superintendent of all the free churches, all of our kind of churches in the whole southeast United States, and to begin to do uh, some scenario planning in view of my illness. And, and of course, we all wonder what the future holds, what's going to come of the church, when and if I'm no longer able to function as the pastor. I'm, uh, it's a concern I'm sure almost all of us have thought about, especially the past month or so. And we talked about what we see as some, you know, what are the church's limitations, what are its weaknesses for handling something like this. And so since we were talking about that, at some point I felt compelled to speak about what I see as some of the church's strengths. And as you could have predicted, I brought up how much I have always loved how so many of our people do not leave when we tell them it's okay to leave. <laughs> I've always seen that as a strength and something good. Um, people have friends to talk to, fellowship to share. It just—it isn't in our church. Let me just put it this way: it isn't in our church's DNA 
to try to squeeze the fellowship aspect of what, uh, of what we should be and what a church should be into a 90-second meet and greet where in the middle of the service you turn around and greet your neighbor and say, uh, you know, it's get it in in 90 seconds so that you'd add your fellowship and when, you, when they say you can go, you're out of there. That's not us. A few, few weeks ago, I repeated this observation. I've repeated, you know, thousands of times uh, to, to someone. Well, I won't mention his name either, but he's got the same initials as Bill Walls. But he said, sorry, Bill. But I told him what I just told you, and he said, he said it's worse than that. They don't leave when you tell them they have to leave. <laughs> So I was telling this in our meeting with the district superintendent, you know, about, you know, I said, people don't leave when you tell them you can leave. I think it's a strong, it says a fellowship, the love, the love. And he said, and yet you were concerned what will come of the church if you weren't there. They're not all standing in line to talk to you, are they? It was an encouraging, encouraging admonishment to me. And uh, I'll bet it was one of Glenn's spiritual gifts at work. <laughs> it felt like a spiritual gift at work. What do you think? So here's the usefulness. You know, what's this about for us? We need more spiritual gifts. We are commanded to desire greater gifts than we've got. We need people we already have to exercise spiritual gifts they already have, whether they know it or not. But what the church needs even, infinitely more than that, we've already got. And lots of it. There's always room for more, but thank the Lord for what we have. We have the, in, we will want more. And you probably know places where it could be more. But we have the indispensable thing. The exercise of spiritual gifts without love, you know, what could be clear? These verses say, it's a big, fat, nothing, or even worse. Love, however, apart from the gifts, is still something of eternal value and it's the only suitable environment for using gifts my gifts your gifts the gifts of others who might join us the, to to great and eternal effect lord thank you for the love that prevails uh, for the indispensable love that makes everything else matter uh, for the love that without which we are nothing. Give us more of this wonderful and good thing. Give us more of your love poured out in our hearts that makes the gifts work for good and for much and not for nothing. And may our love prove winsome and persuasive and compelling to any who are outside of Christ, not knowing or having received his love, which moved him to give himself for them. We pray in the name of this Savior. Amen.